Hi, listeners. Before we get started this week, I want to give a brief content warning. In this week's story, I'll discuss the sexual abuse of a child, which contributed to her death as a young adult. I'll also discuss topics of self-harm and suicide in that context. While I won't get into graphic sexual details, some elements may be disturbing to sensitive listeners. Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 223, The Mysterious Murder, Maybe, of Star Faithful. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'm talking about the disappearance and rediscovery of Star Faithful. As her stepfather would say to the press at the time, two R's in Star, two L's in Faithful. When her body washed up on a Long Island beach 90 years ago, the case became a national obsession. At the center of the story was a beautiful young flapper, with a diary full of covert sexual conquests, a sordid history with a prominent politician, and a drug and booze-fueled nightlife in the speakeasies of two major cities. Was her death a suicide driven by her dark past? A tragic accident after one too many? Or was it something even darker? A murder for hire on behalf of a former Boston mayor, or his underworld adversaries? But before we talk about the tragic life and untimely death of Star Faithful, I'd just like to pause and thank the loyal listeners who make it possible for me to make Hub History. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, you've probably heard some talk recently about Apple's new paid podcast subscription model. This comes on the heels of a wave of podcasts that are exclusively available on paid apps like Luminary, Spotify, and Audible. Call me old-fashioned, but it's important to me that this podcast is available to any listener in any app at no cost. Our Patreon sponsors are the ones who make that possible. By supporting Hub History with as little as $2 a month, they cover the costs of making this podcast. Costs like podcast media hosting, web hosting and security, transcription services, audio processing, and all the costs, big and small, that go into making a podcast. If you'd like to join them, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory, or visit hubhistory.com and click on the Support Us link. And thanks again to all our new and returning sponsors. Now it's time for this week's main topic. Down in New York, the ocean side of Long Island is protected by a series of outer barrier islands stretching 75 miles from Rockaway Beach in Queens to West Hampton. Near the southern end of this span is Long Beach Island, and in the middle of Long Beach Island is the town of Long Beach. It's known for having a very long beach. During the Great Depression, this Long Beach was popular with beachcombers looking for valuables that they could sell to get by. One of these beachcombers found the body of a young woman partially buried in the sand at about 6.30 in the morning on Monday, June 8, 1931, near the town line between Long Beach and Atlantic Beach. She had been wearing a silk dress from Lord and Taylor with no undergarments, and her clothes and chestnut-brown hair were caked with sand from where the waves and tides had nearly buried her. Her skin was covered in bruises, abrasions, and other marks. The beachcomber who found the body hailed some other beachcombers, and together they found a passing policeman. The cop came along and looked at the body, and then sent one member of the growing crowd to find a telephone, with which she called police headquarters. Eventually, a detective and an undertaker arrived, and the unidentified body was taken to the Nassau County morgue. 
There, a physician named Algernon Warriner from a nearby town performed an autopsy. In his book, The Passing of Star Faithful, Jonathan Goodman quotes from Warriner's report. Upon opening the torso, he found one half pint of cherry red bloody fluid free in the peritoneal cavity and collected in pelvis and flank. Exploration of the abdominal cavity revealed two small lacerations, one inch in length and five small ones, one quarter inch in length, on the dome of the liver, on the right side, high under the diaphragm. The lungs are grayish-red in color and containing throughout air. On sectioning of lung, it presents a bright red color, and red froth exudes from the cut surface. In the book, Goodman points out a number of typos and errors in the report as a sign of the doctor's carelessness but the analysis of the lungs was consistent with drowning. Drownings were not uncommon along this popular stretch of beach, so there didn't seem to be much urgency to launch an investigation. Detective Inspector Harold King made a note to start trying to identify the body after lunch, and then went back to his office to wrap up loose ends. When he got there at about 10 a.m., Stanley Faithful was waiting for him. The next day's Boston Globe reported that Stanley had come because he heard that they'd found a missing woman, and his stepdaughter had been missing from their apartment at 12 St. Luke's Place in Manhattan since Friday. Within hours of arriving in Long Island, he had identified the body as his stepdaughter, Star Faithful. That first notice was buried on page 19 of the Globe. By the next day, the story had moved to the lead headline on the front page. The local press had discovered that Star Faithful was once Marion Star Wyman of Brookline, and that a DA from Nassau County, New York, was in Boston to question Star's known friends and acquaintances. The Globe ran a profile of Star in the evening edition on June 10th containing details of her life in the Boston area, many of which would become important in the case. It described Star as being well-remembered by the playmates of her school days in Brookline as a precocious, though moody girl who was noted for her remarkably erudite conversation and her habit of reading books far beyond her years. Even today, folks out in Park Street, Brookline, recall this exceptional girl, who religiously kept a diary from the time she was a dozen years of age, claiming she intended someday to write a book, and she would then appreciate this daily record of all her reactions, experiences, and conclusions on life in general. The article also noted that she was related by marriage to former Mayor Andrew J. Peters, her mother being a cousin of Mrs. Peters. At this point, the press was still referring to Starr as an accidental drowning victim. At first blush, the drowning explanation makes a lot of sense. Over the five years or so before her death, Starr had gone on cruises in the Caribbean and Mediterranean, and she'd made the trip to London at least five times for extended stays. Even when she wasn't going on a trip, the young faithful was a frequent and welcome guest along the Chelsea waterfront in New York, especially on majestic Cunard Line steamers like the Olympic, the Laconia, or the Franconia. In fact, she had visited the ship's doctor on Cunard's RMS Franconia on May 29th, just a few days before her death. She was more than a little bit obsessed with Dr. George Jameson Carr, who she referred to as the love of her life. Dr. Jameson Carr was just not that into her. In a deposition, he described how Star Faithful first came into his life. In June 1927, shortly after the Urania sailed from Montreal, I was called by my nurse to deal with an emergency in one of the third-class tourist cabins. Star Faithful, whom I had not met before, was in the cabin. 
there was a young man in the cabin with her, also intoxicated. Both persons were fully clothed. She was comatose. In fact, I thought she was dead. But he was making love to her. She, naturally, had no response at this stage. I arranged for the young man to be placed under surveillance until, after I'd used a stomach pump, Star Faithful regained consciousness. She insisted that he was the love of her life, but when reporters later questioned the nature of their relationship, he would say, You don't become romantic about a girl on whom you used a stomach pump the first time you saw her. On May 29, 1931, she spent some time in his cabin in the crew quarters, but then he made her leave when the ship was preparing to push back from the dock. Instead of deboarding, she just went up on deck while the ship maneuvered through the harbor. She had to be forcibly removed from the Franconia and returned to shore on a tugboat. Some sources say that she was begging the sailors who dragged her off the ship to throw her overboard and kill her. That was a Friday night, one week before her disappearance. Starting on the next Thursday, June 4th, Starr's behavior became even more erratic than usual. That afternoon, she got extremely drunk and had a cabbie drive her around Queens looking for a party that she never found. That evening, she claimed to have an invitation to a party with Broadway actors, but another physician acquaintance later said that she spent the evening with him, drinking at a speakeasy and then driving aimlessly around Manhattan. The next morning, she left the family apartment at 12 St. Luke's Place at 9.30 a.m. She was wearing a silk dress from Lord & Taylor, She had $3 in her pocket, and she said she was going to get her hair done. According to her family, she would never return. Incidentally, 12 St. Luke's Place was right next door to the fictional Huxtable residence. Whenever an outdoor shot of the house was shown on the Cosby show, it was 10 St. Luke's Place. Star Faithful seems to have spent the day of her disappearance, June 5, 1931, at the Cunard Wharves. She bought a newspaper in Greenwich Village at 11.30 a.m., and then at about 1 p.m., she hailed a cab near the Cunard Wharf in Chelsea. The cabbie was named Murray Edelman, and he had seen Starr's picture in the papers after she was kicked off the Franconia the week before. He told police that Starr had gotten into the taxi with a man in a Cunard uniform, who she called Brucey. The pair rode to 12 St. Luke's Place, and along the way, Starr told this Brucey that she'd see him at 4 p.m., He told her sternly not to come back. After dropping Star at her house, Edelman drove Brucey back to the Chelsea Piers, where Edelman waited for another fare. To his astonishment, Star Faithful again climbed into his back seat at about 2 p.m. This time, she was visibly drunk and arguing with Brucey, who told the cabbie to take her home and not let her come back. Unfortunately, she only had 10 cents in her pocket so Edelman dropped her off after just a few blocks. The last time he saw her, she was walking toward the wharves again. Star was spotted by an acquaintance at Grand Central Terminal at about 2.30. At 5 p.m., she was kicked off of Cunard's Mauritania just before it sailed for the Bahamas. Later that evening, Star Faithful visited Dr. Charles Young Roberts, the same doctor she'd gone to the speakeasy with the night before, on his ship RMS Caramania. She had dinner and drinks with him on the ship from 5.30 until sometime after 10 p.m., when he put her in a cab bound for the Ile-de-France, another Cunard liner which was docked nearby. She didn't make it home that night. At about dinner time the next day, June 6th, 
her stepfather filed a missing persons report with the NYPD. On Monday morning, June 8th, her body was found. Perhaps Starfaithful had been successful in stowing away on one of the many Cunard steamers she had visited Friday afternoon. And perhaps she was despondent and jumped. Or maybe she was just drunk and she fell overboard. That accidental drowning theory is less convincing when you find out that Star Faithful had once been Marion Star Wyman, a competitive swimmer at her private boarding school in Lowell, Massachusetts. Known to her family as Bambi, spelled with a Y, Marion Wyman had been born in Evanston, Illinois in 1906, but she grew up in Brookline. Her father, Frank Wyman, was an investment banker in Boston who'd made a series of bad bets and lost his fortune. While her mother, Helen, came from an impoverished branch of the otherwise fairly wealthy Pierce family of Andover. Helen's family background didn't come with a lot of money, but it did come with connections. She was related to many of the old Boston Brahmin lineages, including the Peabody's, from whom she inherited a sum large enough to keep the family's heads above water for a while. She was also connected with the Peters family, at least from the time her first cousin, Martha Phillips, married Andrew James Peters in 1910. At the time, he was a congressman, representing the Massachusetts 11th District, mostly Brighton and West Roxbury. Eventually, he would pay to send Bambi and her younger sister to boarding school at Rogers Hall in Lowell. The evening edition of the Boston Globe on June 10th noted... Star Wyman attended the Brookline High School and later the Rogers Hall School in Lowell. While she did not graduate at the latter school, Miss Olive S. Parsons, principal, said Star excelled in athletics and was especially expert in swimming. In fact, she'd been the captain of the swim team, a fact that prompted the Nassau County DA, Elvin Edwards, to seek a second opinion on the findings of Star Faithful's autopsy. The second autopsy would be performed by Dr. Otto Schultz an experienced forensic pathologist who'd worked for the DA's office and the Nassau County Police in the past. In the evening edition of The Globe on June 10th, District Attorney Edwards was quoted discussing the second autopsy, and it sounds much more professional. Dr. Schultz, professor of Cornell University, has just performed the autopsy on the body of Star Faithful. He told me that his autopsy indicated that the girl had not been drinking prior to her death, or prior to the time she met her death. There was no indication of any liquor in her organs. Schultz interpreted the discoloration of the girl's skin differently than the local doctor had, and he found new evidence as well. In Goodman's book, he excerpts a passage from the autopsy report that caused investigators to reevaluate the circumstances of the case. The bronchi of the lung contained fine, gritty particles, not visible, but palpable. On scraping with a knife, the lung delivers very light-colored froth that easily runs off the surface of the knife, and a froth of large bubbles. From the froth, very fine, gritty sand particles can be separated on the palm of the hand. Similarly, upon probing the branches of the bronchi of the left lung, he felt numerous fine grains of sand. When sectioned, the lung delivers an almost colorless froth with large bubbles, which, when rubbed between the hands, discloses fine particles of sand. The sand in her lung tissue, as well as a heavy residue of sand in the trachea, led Schultz to conclude that Star had been drowned in the shallow water of the sandy surf zone near the beach. 
He also reevaluated the discoloration of the skin on the arms and torso that Warrener had chalked up to postmortem hemorrhages, instead believing that they could have been bruises. The June 10th Evening Globe interpreted the results released by D.A. Edwards' office as forced into the waters of Long Beach, New York, by the hands that had brutally beaten and bruised her partially clothed body, Miss Star Faithful, formerly of Brookline, was held under the surface until she drowned. Bruises on her body, sand and water in her lungs, disclosed that this was the manner in which the girl was slain. While wildly speculative, it still seemed like a more likely explanation than assuming that the champion swimmer had accidentally drowned. By this time, Star's swimming days were long behind her. It's not exactly clear whether the Wyman marriage fell apart because Helen met a brash entrepreneur named Stanley Faithful, or whether she met Stanley after her marriage fell apart. By the time Helen filed for divorce in Dedham District Court in 1924, she and the children were living in an apartment on Grove Street in West Roxbury, near the Dedham Line, while Frank was still in the family home on Park Street in Brookline. Stanley Faithful was recently widowed, living in an apartment on Sutherland Road in Brookline, and recently out of work, after the food additive company that he'd been president of went bankrupt. The two recent singles wed in February 1925, and all three Wyman women changed their surnames to Faithful. By this time, Starr had already dropped out of school over a year before, when she was 18 and just two months away from graduating. Her teenage years hadn't been happy ones. As she matured, she displayed what her family considered an excess of modesty. She even frequently wore boys' clothing to hide her shape, although that was very unusual at the time. In 1924, Starr was committed to a mental hospital in Wellesley for nine days, and in the wake of that hospitalization, she confessed the dark secret that she'd been keeping to her mother. Starting in 1917, when she was 11 years old and he was 45, Andrew Peters had begun abusing her. He was a trusted family member with children about Star's own age, and her parents often sent her to the Peters household for playdates and slumber parties. At one of these sleepovers, Mr. Peters dosed the young girl with ether, and when she came to, he was physically abusing her. Over the course of the next seven years or more, the pair would take many long automobile trips together, to Quebec City, where they shared a room in the Frontenac Hotel, to Manhattan, where they shared a room at the Astor, and many more. The night at the Astor ended up leading to another stay in a mental hospital, which the United Press eventually discovered and reported on on June 11th. The most startling, perhaps, of the many developments within the last 24 hours which have made the mysterious death a case of the first magnitude was a telltale hospital record card, which portrayed Miss Faithful as scarcely the quietly demure and reserved homegirl that her stepfather had described to the police. The record revealed that a little more than a year ago she was taken to Bellevue Hospital as an alcoholic patient after being found in a room at an uptown hotel with a man who described himself to the ambulance surgeon as her husband. When admitted, she was suffering from bruises and lacerations, but neither her parents, who took her home the next day, nor the police had been able to learn the name of her companion that night. Starr's parents, and later her stepfather, were grateful for the older man's attention 
believing that the trusted family member was helping to reveal the horizon of a wider world that they couldn't afford to show their daughter. To the ether, Peter soon added the barbiturate Veronal, a hypnotic agent in sleep aid, and Star Faithful began abusing alcohol when she wasn't around him. Within a year of this predatory relationship's beginning, Andrew Peters was elected mayor of Boston. The abuse would continue and escalate throughout his term and for years afterward, when he was weighing a run for governor. His term as mayor is mostly remembered for the Boston police strike of 1919. In the weeks leading up to the strike, as his administration desperately tried to negotiate a compromise position between the newly formed police union and the commissioner, Peters was AWOL, spending a week off the grid in Maine probably with thin 13-year-old Star Faithful in tow. After seven years of dosing the young girl with anesthetic and hypnotic agents, forcing her to read passages from sexual self-help books by Havelock Ellis, and physically abusing her in an escalating pattern, Peter's abuse was finally revealed to the Faithfuls. Another family might have pressed charges, or gone to the papers, or demanded a private apology. The chronically broke Faithfuls chose a different approach. Stanley Faithful met with one of Peter's lieutenants and proposed a cash settlement in exchange for the family's silence. After some haggling, they settled on about $25,000 in payments toward the family's way-over-mortgaged Cape House, along with cash payments to the family to cover the cost of Star's medical and psychiatric care, adding up to about $38,000. It was a small fortune at the time. Still, Stanley Faithful was not satisfied. Over the years, he received several more payments from Mayor Peters, for a total of perhaps $80,000. This blackmail scheme may have been the family's primary source of income for years. Even on the day Star Faithful went missing, all her parents could seemingly think of was how to capitalize on her misfortune. That day, Stanley typed a letter to Andrew Peters' sister-in-law, and Helen signed it. In it, they reveal what they learned after Star's hospitalization. After questioning her for hours, we drew from her the story of the past years. Beginning when she was only a young child, Andrew had forced his attentions on her, and at many hotels where he had stopped with her on his trips to North Haven in New York, he had falsely registered her. The letter continued, Bambi had disappeared, and we can find no trace of her. Friday morning, she left to take a walk and has not returned. We have inquired of every place where she might be found, and nobody has seen her. Yesterday afternoon, Mr. Faithful went to the police headquarters and listed her among the missing. We are in a terrible predicament. If we give the information needed for a public search, it would probably result in a lot of undesirable notoriety, involving perfectly innocent people. This is the one thing I have tried to avoid. We must find Bambi, and yet I do not see how I can do it privately. Can you help? He then listed a number of debts and expenses related to the family's house on Cape Cod and the apartment in New York strongly implying that if the Peters covered those expenses, they would be able to avoid that undesirable notoriety. As far as I can tell, the Peters family never made that requested payoff. On Wednesday, June 10th, 
two days after the body was discovered, police searched Star Faithful's bedroom and the apartment on St. Luke's place to see if there were any clues about what led up to her death. As an aside, this was during the era when newspapers spelled clue as C-L-E-W, which I find delightful. After looking through her dressing table and bureau, a detective sat down on Star's bed and started sorting through the top shelf of the bookcase that was just an arm's length away. It held books by Kipling, Milton, and Alfred Lord Tennyson, as well as knickknacks like a collectible plate from Lindbergh's solo flight across the Atlantic and a bunch of dried flowers. He set aside a stack of theater programs that were on top of the books on the first shelf and noticed that the tops of the spines of two volumes were more worn than their neighbors, as if these two were regularly pulled out. Following his gut, he pulled out these two books, and behind them was Starr's secret diary. The volume began in September 1926, noting the day that she got home from her first cruise to the Mediterranean, and it ran through January 1929, with the final entry simply saying, God damn our house. Most of the entries were typical stuff. Trips she went on, family squabbles, and drives in the country with her parents. Between those prosaic entries were a handful of more salacious ones. The diary detailed her long series of encounters with someone named Edwin, from December 1926 through June of the next year. This would turn out to be Edwin McGargy, an artist who the Faithfuls had hired to take Star to bed and hopefully expose her to a more so-called normal sexual encounter, after years of trauma with Mayor Peters. Star's diary recorded her sexual liaisons with at least 19 different men, who she identified by initials or first name. Among those initials, AJP appeared several times. Most of them were in reference to her attempts to deal with the fallout from the abuse, rather than about the abuse itself. Maybe that had been recorded in the 12 pages that had been carefully torn out. One of the remaining entries confirmed Stanley's blackmail attempts. God, some day. Mother and Stanley at the dock to meet me off to California. Stanley looks so well, I didn't know him. Everything is unbelievably wonderful. Stanley's tactics have come through, and we got $20,000 out of old AJP. We'll have another car, and a motorboat, and everything. I was so excited and thrilled. Since initially speaking to Stanley in the days after Starr's body was discovered, District Attorney Edwards had made veiled references to a powerful politician in his statements to the press. For example, on June 11th, the United Press syndicated a story that quoted him saying, There are several persons who would have been happier if Star Faithful were dead, and some of these are prominent, both socially and politically. The big politician mentioned in the case since the investigation started is not out of the picture yet. We have evidence to show that he had a motive for putting Star out of the way. Through leaks in the police department and through careless comments by Stanley Faithful, many reporters came to believe that Andrew Peters was the politician Edwards kept hinting at. They all tried to get a comment on the record from Peters, but he just gave a bland quote about having known the family back in Boston. Then, on the Monday after the body was discovered, a United Press reporter named Carl Grote ran the first in a series of articles that obviously drew on inside information. Under the headline, 
Star Faithful's family bears shocking story of girls ruined by Benefactor. Grote painted a picture of the anonymous politician that clearly drew on inside knowledge from both the family and Star Faithful's diary. The man in question is prominent and well-to-do, a respected member of the community in which he lives. He has children of his own. He was, according to the parents, kind to Star, and later to her pretty sister, Tucker. The kindness and philanthropy, they told the United Press, were a cloak for their relationship that lasted for years and came to light only five years ago through an incident in a New York hotel. The man's kindness cloaked his deeds, according to the faithfuls. But one day she came home distraught and troubled and told of a night in a New York hotel, at the recollection of which she shuddered. In the subsequent week-long series of articles that many papers carried on the front page, Grote excerpted the most salacious passages in the diary, speculated that Starr had been suicidal, and dished rumors and gossip about the case. It turns out that the wire service had agreed to pay the family for background details and access to the diary by putting Starr's little sister on the payroll. She made a hundred bucks a week for a job that had no duties, and didn't require her to go into the office. Soon, the New York Daily News broke the story of Stanley Faithful's attempt to extort more money from Peters in the days after Starr's disappearance. Now, all the leading theories of the case that were being investigated by the police were also being pondered by the public. First, and most obviously, Star Faithful might have drowned accidentally. She had a documented history of alcohol abuse, even being hospitalized for it at Bellevue, and she loved to talk her way onto Cunard liners, getting very publicly dragged off the Franconia after it put to sea, just a week before her disappearance. An early theory of the case was that she had snuck onto another Cunard steamer by getting close to a crew member, gotten drunk, and fallen off the ship as it left New York Harbor. However, as more facts came out, this version of events started to look less likely. First of all, the autopsies revealed that she hadn't consumed any alcohol for 36 to 48 hours before her death. Then there was the inconvenient fact that she was an excellent swimmer. If she had fallen off a boat sober, it seemed unlikely that she would have succumbed to the waves easily. What if, instead of falling off a Cunard, she had been thrown off? That was also a popular theory, as many people had witnessed her volatile temper as she fought with Dr. George Jameson Carr on the Franconia and her other maritime friends and lovers. Add to that the barbiturates that were in her liver when she was found on June 8th, and it seems likely that foul play might have been involved. Certainly that's what Stanley Faithful and Elvin Edwards believed when the United Press published this lead paragraph on June 16th. Both the family of Dead Star Faithful and District Attorney Elvin N. Edwards of Nassau County clung today to the theory of murder and her strange death. Moreover, their idea that the girl of many moods met a violent death before her body was cast up by the sea at Long Beach was strengthened as traces of Veronal were found in post-mortem examination. The Veronal may have been merely a sedative, but from the sinister chain of circumstances so far adduced in her life history, Authorities were more than ever convinced that her death was traceable to someone who wanted her silenced. A later analysis would reveal that instead of Veronal, Starr instead had a stronger barbiturate known as Alanol in her system when she died, lending additional credence to the idea that she had been drugged by someone else. 
Against that, however, stands the fact that Star was well-known around the Cunard wharves in Chelsea, and her comings and goings at the wharves seem to have been well-observed and recorded in the days before her disappearance. It's not impossible that she slipped through the cracks and got on board, but it doesn't seem likely either. The sand in her lungs and trachea also provided strong evidence against the idea that she was thrown off a ship in deep water. Then there was the possibility of suicide. Her diary was full of references to killing herself if this or that lover refused to see her, but they seemed like the overdramatic prose of an emotional teenager, which is what she was at the time. However, in the days immediately before her disappearance, she wrote three letters to Dr. Jameson Carr, who'd already departed for London on the Franconia. In two of the letters, she's frighteningly specific about harming herself. The doctor would receive both letters in London, after Starr was long dead, and he brought them back to New York for examination by the police and the district attorney. In a letter dated May 30th, the day after she was kicked off the Franconia, Starr wrote, I am going, definitely now, I've been thinking of it for a long time, to end my worthless, disorderly bore of an existence, before I ruin anyone else's life as well. I certainly have made a sordid, futureless mess out of it all. I am dead, dead sick of it. It's no one's fault but my own. I hate everything so. Life is horrible. Being a sane person, you may not understand. I take dope to forget and drink to try to like people, but it's no use. I am mad and insane over you. I hold my breath to try and stand it. Take Alanol in the hope of waking happier but that homesick feeling never leaves me. I have, strangely enough, more of a feeling of peace, or whatever you call it, now that I know it will all be soon over. The half hour before I die will, I imagine, be quite blissful. And then just a few days later, she wrote another letter on June 4th, the day before she disappeared, and the day before she tried so hard to get aboard another Cunard liner this one is just as graphic. It's all up with me now. This is something I am going to put through. The only thing that bothers me about it, the only thing I dread, is being outwitted and prevented from doing this, which is the only possible thing for me to do. If one wants to get away with murder, one has to jolly well keep one's wits about one. It's the same way with suicide. If I don't watch out, I'll wake up in a psychopathic ward but I intend to watch out and accomplish my end this time. No ether, alanol, or window jumping. I don't want to be maimed. I want oblivion. Nothing makes any difference now. I love to eat and can have one delicious meal with no worry over gaining weight. I adore music, and I'm going to hear some good music. I believe I love music more than anything. I'm going to drink slowly keeping aware every second. These thoughts represent a young woman who's moved from suicidal ideation to a plan for action. A 2009 article in the Psychiatric Times weighs how detailed planning can reflect the seriousness of a potential suicide victim's intent. The extent, thoroughness, and time spent by the patient on suicidal planning may be a better reflection of the seriousness of his intent and the proximity of his desire to act on that intent than is his actual stated intent. To me, suicide is the most convincing explanation of what happened to end Star Faithful's life. 
She had written about it quite explicitly, and the days before her death included what seemed to be a spiral of increasingly irrational behavior. Doubts remain, however, because of the method. It seems implausible, if not downright impossible, that someone who had ingested as much alanol as was found in her system could get into the water on her own. Add to that the doubt that someone who was fantasizing about having a good meal, listening to good music, and slowly enjoying a good cocktail would suddenly pivot to drowning. A violent and panic-inducing way to go. And suicide also starts to seem far-fetched. In the end, investigators didn't reach a conclusive explanation for Starfaithful's death. While there was lots of speculation about accidents, suicide, or murder in the press, there just wasn't enough evidence for Detective Inspector King or D.A. Edwards to consider the case solved. On December 7, 1931, the case was officially closed, six months and one day after Star Faithful was originally reported missing. There is one more theory of Star's death. Jonathan Goodman's book, The Passing of Star Faithful, was published in 1990, almost 60 years after Star's death. It has the distinction of being the only account of her death written by someone who had been given access to the complete police files on the investigation. And he came to a conclusion that seems both a bit far-fetched and very tempting, at least because of its solid ties back to Boston. Goodman leaned heavily on the lack of alcohol in Star's system for at least 36 hours, as well as the lack of damage to her silk dress that would have been caused by days in the water, to conclude that Star was killed no earlier than the evening of June 7th or the early morning of June 8th, the day her body was discovered. Goodman also leans on a note in the case file from Detective John Fogarty, who said that a mafia informant claimed that Andrew Peters had stayed in the Astor Hotel in New York during the first or second weekend in May. And while there, mobsters from Boston extorted $30,000 from Peters by threatening to expose his sordid past with Ms. Faithful. The boss who had ordered the shakedown was rumored to be Charles King Solomon. Longtime listeners will remember Solomon as Boston Charlie, the immigrant head of the Jewish mob in Boston, who'd worked his way up from petty thief to pimp to owner of several nightclubs, including the infamous Coconut Grove. During Prohibition, Solomon's business was booming, and he became a local celebrity after regularly attending his nightclubs dressed impeccably and flanked by the most beautiful and well-known vaudeville starlets in town. He even represented Boston at the famous 1929 Atlantic City Conference, where mafiosos from around the country, like Meyer Lansky, Lucky Luciano, Nucky Johnson, and Al Capone, divided up the country's territory and established a sort of non-compete clause. If you're curious, you can learn more about Solomon's reign over Boston's underworld in episodes 38 and 39. Goodman theorizes that Boston Charlie got information about Peter's abuse of Star Faithful from John Lyons. Lyons was a Solomon associate who would help to deliver the 1917 mayoral election for Peters. In exchange, he was given tacit permission to skim 10% off his city contracts. 10% Joe had his own desk at Boston City Hall, with reporter Joe Deneen noting in a retrospective about Peters... In an anteroom adjoining Peter's office, there was a bagman who would deal, dicker, or negotiate for almost anything. Jobs and promotions had price tags on them. Political affiliation meant nothing. Anybody could buy almost anything at the bargain counter. All that was needed was the price, 
Through lions, Solomon learned about Star and ordered the extortion at the Astor Hotel. There was only one problem. Before the bagmen even got done splitting up the proceeds from shaking down Peters, they were ambushed and robbed. Another one of Detective Fogarty's mob informants told him that the New York gangster Vanny Higgins was responsible for this second shakedown, whereas men made off with both $30,000 in cash and the priceless knowledge that Andrew James Peters, former congressman and Boston mayor, gubernatorial candidate, and close political ally of up-and-comer Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was vulnerable. From here, the story is purely a product of Jonathan Goodman's speculation. He believed that Higgins wanted to get an edge on Solomon by going directly to the horse's mouth for dirt about Faithful and Peters, so he arranged for the young woman to be kidnapped. His men tailed her around Chelsea as she tried to talk her way onto various ocean liners. Then eventually, one of them posed as a cabbie and picked her up at Pier 56, the last place where her whereabouts could be confirmed. Another mob informant had told Detective Ben Grieve that Star Faithful had been at Tapp's Hotel on the night of her disappearance, a Nassau County speakeasy on the waterfront just across a narrow channel from Long Beach. In a back room at Tapp's Hotel, Goodman speculates, Star was treated quite well at first. She was given a meal, perhaps more than one. The meal, or the last of the meals, was of, among other ingredients, meat and mushrooms and potatoes, raw or perhaps stewed fruit for dessert. If she was offered a drink, she said no. Supposing that, as Dr. Roberts' testimony suggests, she possessed no calming drugs, she asked for some, and was provided with Alanol, stronger than Veranol, which she was used to taking. She was told that she had no need to be frightened. Once she dished the dirt, every speck on Andrew Peters, she'd be driven back to Manhattan. She might even be given a present, a little something as a gesture of gratitude for her cooperation, of regret for the inconvenience she had been caused, of appreciation for her promise that she would invent a reason for her absence from home. She talked, said everything she remembered about her relationship with Andrew Peters. However, no matter what she said, no matter what horrifying detail she forced herself to relive, it wasn't enough for Higgins. Goodman's hypothesis continues. And so Vanny Higgins, perhaps aided by a couple of his goons, working turn and turn about enjoyably, tried to beat the truth out of Star. She had no more truth to tell. She may, in desperation, have puffed up her story with lies, but she was not a good liar never had been. The lies made Vanny furious. She was left alone for a while, told that she had only herself to blame for the bruises on her body, that she would suffer further injury, worse injury, if she remained obstinate. She took another dose of Alanol, all that was left. Vanny Higgins, returning, found her unconscious. He may already have decided that she couldn't be allowed to live. Now, perhaps, he concluded that the beating had been too brutal, that if she was not yet dead, she was dying. He made arrangements to dispose of her, to give her death the look of an accident. Goodman believed that the body was dragged out the back door to the hotel's dock, where rum runners landed their wares at night, and merrymakers from the city rented speedboats in the daytime. One of Higgins' goons borrowed one of these speedboats, cut out through the channel about four miles to the ocean side of Long Beach, where the body was unlikely to float back to the hotel, 
and there he dumped it. Goodman concludes his speculative account. That is what I think happened. I may be wrong, of course. I rather hope that I am. I have become, in a sort of way, fond of Star Faithful, and I would prefer to think that for once in her life, in the last few hours of it, she was content. To learn more about the tragic life and unexplained death of Marion Wyman, a.k.a. Star Faithful, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 223. I'll have links to coverage of the investigation in the Boston Globe and to the salacious pieces published by Charles Grote of the United Press Wire Service after he got access to Star Faithful's family and diary. I'll include childhood pictures of Faithful from before her introduction to Andrew Peters, as well as a picture of her taken shortly before she died. I'll also include an affiliate link where you can support the show by purchasing your own copy of Jonathan Goodman's The Passing of Star Faithful. And I'll link to our related past podcast episodes about the Boston police strike, mobster Charles Solomon, and the Coconut Grove tragedy. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link, and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line, and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. <laughs>